How can we use lasers to improve particle accelerator technology? Dr. Laura Corner's work looks at exactly that, using novel techniques such as plasma wake field acceleration to reduce the distances over which we accelerate particles. In this episode, we cover her fascinating career in laser physics, from the tradition of studying physics in her family to the undergraduate experiment that set in motion a lifetime passion. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, don't forget to share and subscribe to the Liverpool Scientific wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi everyone and welcome to the Liverpool Scientific. In today's episode I'm joined by Dr Laura Corner, lecturer in laser particle accelerator science in the Department of Engineering here at Liverpool and one of the heads of graduate education and training at the Cockcroft Institute of Accelerator Science and Technology. Laura thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, great, it's brilliant to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So to start off, what exactly is the Cockcroft Institute and, and what exactly is your work here looking at? So the Cockcroft Institute is one of two particle accelerator institutes in the UK. There um, is one in the south of England, the John Adams Institute, which has researchers from the universities of Oxford, Royal Holloway and Imperial. And the Cockcroft Institute is the northern um, particle Accelerator Institute, involving researchers from Liverpool, Manchester, Lancaster, Strathclyde, and also from the Darsbury National Laboratory, which is about 16 miles away from us here in Liverpool, near Warrington. And we work on all aspects of particle accelerator science. So people doing things like building upgrades to the LHC, um, great new diagnostics, working on new conventional accelerators, right through to the areas that I work on, which is about novel accelerators. So in my particular case, I, I work on something called laser plasma wake field acceleration, which is where we use a laser to, to drive particle accelerators. And we also have a big graduate training program for our PhD students uh, across across all of the universities. So I'd never actually really heard of lasers being used in uh, particle accelerators. So can you tell us a bit more about why you're using these lasers and how they differ from, from regular particle accelerators? So my group does research in the, the use of, of lasers in particle accelerator science right across the board. And that can range from using lasers to measure the properties of charged particle bunches. So using lasers to do things like measure the size or the position of charged particle beams in a non-invasive way so that you can still carry on using the, the particles, but primarily interested in new kinds of particle accelerator technology. So everyone kind of goes, you say particle accelerator and everyone instantly thinks of the LHC and yep. big tunnels underground and mm -hmm. long, 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 many kilometers of, <laughs> of metal cavities and magnets, all that kind of thing. So yeah, the, the Large Hadron Collider is, is large and that is an issue. It means you've got huge costs involved in the civil engineering and making these big tunnels and things like that. So there's a real interest in what we call generally high gradient acceleration. So looking for ways that we can accelerate particles to higher energy in smaller amounts of space. If you could take a particle accelerator and make it a thousand times smaller, then you'd have real savings in being able to build these and use them in many other environments. And so there are, there are several different techniques for high gradient particle acceleration. And the one that I'm looking at is, is about using lasers and gas to generate high energy bunches of electrons. 
Right, okay, so instead of needing loads of miles and miles of tunnel to accelerate these particles, you don't need, you need a much shorter distance, is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. What we do is we take a, a very high power laser, so terawatts or petawatt laser systems, really big lasers, and we focus them down into a small volume of neutral gas. So obviously that gas is then quickly ionized, so we then have a population of free electrons and ions. And what the laser does is it travels through this population of plasma, a little bit like a snow plow. The front of the plasma pulse pushes electrons away from the front of the, of the laser pulse. A lot of this work was done originally in America, so they call it Wakefield because they think it's like a, a boat leaving a wake behind it and, and driving through water. Because I'm from the north of England, my mind turns to snow plows. So that <laughs> tends to be the analogies that I use. So yeah, we, we drive these electrons, which are much lighter than the iron. So they get driven away from the axis that the laser propagates on. And then they oscillate, they're drawn back onto the axis behind the laser uh, because there's still a population of positively charged ions there. And so uh, the electrons oscillate behind the laser as it propagates through the plasma and sets up um, a plasma wave. And some of those electrons, uh, you, you then have separated electrons and positively charged ions behind the laser pulse. And that gives you very, very strong, very, very high fields, you know, fields up to sort of like 10 GV per meter. And mm. some of the electrons are accelerated in that high accelerating field. And we can produce electrons with very high energies. So the current record is nearly eight uh, giga electron volts. Wow. And that was done in 20 centimeters of plasma. So from a standing start, you get these super high relativistic electrons in these very short distances. 20 centimetres, that's absolutely incredible. So today your research is very much um, done in an applied sense, but you actually studied theoretical physics at Imperial College London. So had, had you always been interested in physics growing up? Oh, absolutely. I don't remember a time when I didn't do physics. It's very much in my family. My grandfather was actually a very well-known theoretical physicist who worked for his entire career at the Atomic Weapons Establishment. My grandmother studied physics uh, at a time when it was very unusual for, for women to study maths and physics and, and had a career as a maths teacher. My dad studied physics. So it was kind of something that was just always around. And my dad always had lots of popular science books. So I always read those. So I sort of decided I wanted to do a physics PhD by the time I was eight or nine, which sounds a bit weird. <laughs> um, but it does mean I didn't have to make any career decisions for a while because I had a very clear idea about where I was going to go. <laughs> so, yes, I was always, always interested in physics. So I did the very uh, typical route to physics from there, specialising at A-level in maths, chemistry, physics, and, and then went up to Imperial to study there. So, so how did you find your experience at Imperial College London? So I think I started off really interested in, in the things that a lot of the, that excite a lot of people about physics. So I was going to do quantum cosmology. I was going to I was going to work on black holes. I was I was going to solve the unification problem. And then it, it turns out that's not quite so easy um, as I kind of thought when I was <laughs> 17. And also, to be honest with you, I found that I just didn't enjoy practical work at university. Mm -hmm. I think this is true across a number of universities. At the practical work, we had felt very cookbook-like. You were just given a, a set of recipes and you sort of got on with it. And it didn't really necessarily help you understanding what was going on, particularly if you have a large year group. You can't necessarily all do the practicals at the same time you're doing the lectures on that subject. 
So I, I found myself very uninterested in the practical work we were doing at university, apart from one practical I did in my second year, which was the most amazingly cool thing, which was a practical to make holograms. And that oh, wow. was, yeah, it was a total revelation to me. I, I sort of went into the, the very dark lab because we were making holograms <laughs> on film. So you're sort of like stumbling around in the dark. <laughs> But within two hours, I'd made this super cool hologram of a nice shiny 50p piece. And I was I was amazed by this. I thought, this is brilliant. <laughs> and that was kind of my first introduction to lasers. And I was so interested in this work. I went to the lecturer in the department who ran that particular lab and said, I really loved that. Can I come and work for you? <laughs> Which is a bit cheeky, but I thought, this is, this is a cool thing I want to do. And he said, yes. So I went and worked for him doing a summer holiday placement for eight mm -hmm. weeks in the summer of my second year. And he had a lab working with, with lasers and materials in the, in the Imperial College um, optics section, which was very, very large and, and still is. And I was just totally hooked. I was like, right, I want to do lasers from now on. That's my thing. <laughs> so I decided at that point I wanted to apply for a PhD in this area. I applied to various places, but I did end up staying at Imperial and working for Professor Mike Damson, who, who then became my PhD supervisor. But because I'd already decided what I wanted to do for my PhD, I was like free to choose what I wanted to do in my final year. And I thought, well, gosh, the labs for final year students look even worse than for the first two years, really boring. <laughs> and there were no laser or optics ones available. So I couldn't even practice the thing oh, I wanted no. to do. So I went, okay, well, I can do what I want to do. And I still had a very strong interest in the more mathematical side of physics. So I, I joined, you only had to make the decision at the end of your second year, I joined the theory stream. So I was able to do all the cool courses on the interesting stuff you wanted to do, general relativity, advanced quantum mm -hmm. mechanics, group theory, that I was still intellectually very interested in, safe in the knowledge that I got a PhD place doing cool stuff with lasers. And because I wasn't doing labs, I had Fridays with nothing timetabled in my final year, which was oh, great. Three day weekend, love that. <laughs> did actually try and do some revision on those Fridays but it was it was nice so it was yeah. kind of like a perfect perfect bit of both worlds I was able to indulge my intellectual interest in theory while setting up to to do the thing that's turned out to be the great the the great professional love of my life which is laser physics I, I'm I'm fascinated how a hologram of a 50p has has literally start springboarded you into this career into laser physics. It's brilliant, um, and I've also never met anyone who's had everything quite that planned out. I'm very impressed. <laughs> the the thing about the lasers and the hologram lab was it was really serendipitous, and actually that's why you should have practicals and things like mm -hmm. that because I would have I would have totally missed out on on this. I would not have chosen to do it because I didn't know about it. So that's the, the the more interesting thing about studying physics at university. You might be convinced that you want to do quantum mechanics, but actually you do an amazing course on uh, planetary atmospheric physics or cosmology and really discover something that you absolutely love. And, and people do change their minds about that for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. My, I myself, I started off my undergraduate degree thinking, yeah, nuclear, I want to do nuclear physics. And now I'm looking at master's project in condensed matter. When I started, I didn't even know that condensed matter existed. I didn't know that that was a field in physics. And I think you're definitely right. So many people start a physics degree and then their eyes are opened to all these amazing fields that they didn't even know existed. So like you said, you went on to do a PhD at Imperial College. So what was your research here actually looking at? I was working um, with a class of materials uh, called photorefractive materials and 
I got into that because they're basically materials in which you can write multiple holograms. So in the same way that you make a hologram on a piece of film, which is by interfering two laser beams that form, uh, that then make an interference pattern, which you can re-illuminate to, to reconstruct the object that you see. That's, that's how holograms work. You can do this exactly the same way in, in 3D materials. Then you can write multiple holograms in the same material. And there was some interest in this for really high density data storage. This was in the late 90s. It was very clear that we were generating more and more data um, mm -hmm. as, as the internet really took off. And so there are people interested in, in can we get solid state recording materials that, that, will, that will be long time archival storage. This isn't the kind of thing you could put in your computer and, and just use for quick read write. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but really thinking about can we can we encode information on a laser beam, use it to write multiple holograms and these titchy, titchy, tiny little crystals, which I kept losing down the holes in my optical <laughs> bench. Don't tell my supervisor that. Um, and, and so I was investigating whether these would work at the slightly longer wavelengths, near-infrared wavelengths that are often used for optical communications through optical fibres. So this was a new material when I was working with it, which was very exciting. It meant for, for a period of a couple of years, I was practically the world expert on this stuff because I'd had 12 of these particular crystals through my lab, which I think was more than anyone else had ever done. <laughs> That's amazing. That's absolutely incredible. And so this material that you're talking about is rhodium doped barium titanate. So so why did you choose to focus on that particular photorefractive material? Uh, well, I didn't choose exactly as as people find out as they do PhDs, you kind of tend to join a project that's already happening in your supervisor's lab. This material barium titanate had been used for a while as a photorefractive device. What had recently been discovered just before I started my PhD was that if you doped this particular crystal with rhodium, it became more sensitive to infrared and near infrared light. So it had been studied reasonably extensively, but to get good results, you had to illuminate with, with sort of visible light systems. And as I say, people were really interested in optical communications and storage. And that means you're using light closer to one micron of wavelength. So my PhD was really about getting a number of different samples of this crystal and trying to, to measure its optical properties, its absorption, how well you could read and write holograms at these longer wavelengths and try and develop a theoretical model to, to understand it. Okay, so so has this technology, you know, these photorefractive materials, have they gone on to do what they wanted them to do in the 90s and to, to provide this uh, option for storage? They haven't really taken off in that respect. But it's interesting to note that I think it's Microsoft who have, have something called Project Silica, where they're looking at something not dissimilar. They're looking at using powerful lasers to write structures into glass as long-term data storage. So although photorefractives, as far as I'm aware, haven't really taken off in this particular application, the idea of using materials as long-term um, archival storage does seem to be coming up again. So in 1999, you moved from Imperial to Oxford to start your work as a postdoctoral researcher. Um, and here you were looking specifically at diode laser techniques. So you continued your work in, into lasers. But, but what was special about these, these particular diode laser techniques? So at the end of my PhD, I was still very clear that I wanted an academic career in physics research. So I was looking for postdoctoral positions. And 
I was just saying how I became a sort of world expert for a, for a small period of time in my PhD research. And it has to be said, that's because it was being done by about two groups worldwide. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty easy to be the expert when there's not much competition. So I was fairly clear that I wanted to do something different because I was conscious that if I carried on doing a very specialist area, I might sort of get myself into, into being unemployable because mm. I was only experienced in this very niche area. So I was looking around a bit more broadly for, um, for research projects that involved lasers in general, but were rather different from my PhD project. Okay. And so I, I ended up in a chemistry department, which was a bit of a shock after being in, in physics for a while. And that was a joint industry project. And we were looking in particular at ways of detecting formaldehyde in the air. Formaldehyde is thought to be one of the chemicals that produces something called sick building syndrome which is where people in particular buildings just have low level cough, cold symptoms all mm. of the time. And that's because lots of sort of like flat pack furniture, MDF and stuff like that, just, just continually give off trace amounts of formaldehyde uh, just at levels that don't make you super sick, but just drag your drag your health yeah. down. And because the, the amounts that that would do this was so small, we, we had to make super, super sensitive detection to, to actually detect these things. And what we needed for that was you need laser sources, which can do the spectroscopy. So you look for the specific absorption lines of the chemical that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And so that means you need a laser at the particular wavelength that the, the molecule you're interested in absorbs that. And it was a long running joke between my chemistry boss and me as, as a physicist in this group that he would he would say, oh, we want to look at this chemical. So I need a laser that operates at this wavelength. And I would say, oh, well, I have a laser at this other wavelength, which is really great. Why don't you use this one, which is easy to make and use? And he would go, no, we can't do that. We need something this wavelength. <laughs> So I sort of got into something that's that's been a feature of my career, which is that I'm really interested in laser applications. So what is the, the cool thing that you want to do with a laser? Does that laser exist? And if not, then, then I get in there and start developing that laser system. So I did lots of work with these little light diode lasers. So the same kind of size of things that you'd find in a barcode reader or a CD player. And we were really interested in those laser sources because as well as sort of trace chemical detection at ground level, my boss was also very interested in detection of atmospheric chemical trace elements. So we were interested in developing lasers that were small enough that you could put them in a plane or even in a a, a meteorology balloon. So you can't have something that's, you know, the size of a room and requires a huge (laughs) electricity and water supply. So we were really concentrating on these smaller laser sources. Brilliant, that's amazing. So you carried on at Oxford after this postdoctoral research position um, and your research kind of moved into the area of focusing on the creation and measurement of attosecond laser pulses. So can you explain a bit more about this research? Once I'd finished developing the laser side of my work in chemistry, I was kind of getting a little bit bored. I didn't really want to work on a a medical spin-out company. That's not Mm -hmm. really my kind of thing, looking at the details of the, the biochemistry involved. So I moved from the chemistry department at Oxford to the physics department to work with another group who were looking at creating really short pulses. So lasers have developed incredibly over the last 20, 25 years, and we can now routinely have 
laser pulses in the, the region of femtoseconds. Mm -hmm. And those are really useful because you can use them to freeze frame molecular processes. And this is really interesting for people in, in chemical and chemical physics, for example. You can actually just take pump probe experiments where you, you set off a, a chemical reaction and then, you, then you, you, you illuminate this with very short femtosecond length pulses and really examine in detail exactly how the chemistry is going on and to interrogate shorter reactions that happen on shorter timescales, you need mm -hmm. shorter pulses. So I was involved in a project to look at, could we create at a second length pulses and really nail down a shorter uh, reaction times. So I worked for uh, um, three or four years doing that, looking at scattering processes in, in hydrogen for making the wide bandwidth lasers we needed to support a short pulse. It wasn't hugely successful. It's a very, very difficult experiment to get working, but it was a, a great experience in terms of doing lots of stuff with, with gases and vacuum systems and pressure systems, which I was able to take forward into the work that I did afterwards on accelerator science. I think sometimes people see these amazing results being published in, in physics or in any science, really, and just think, oh, well, it, these incredibly clever people, they must have had a really smooth ride and got all these results. When in, in actual fact, everything often goes wrong and, and you learn so much from things going wrong and you actually get a greater understanding of the field when things go wrong and you have to solve these problems. So I, I've often found you actually learn more when stuff breaks, things don't work and, and go to plan. Uh, I absolutely agree with you. And in pretty much all the work I've done, I, I've started off something from scratch in a particular group. So you're, you're writing at the ground floor, having to set it all up yourself, rather than joining an experiment that's been working nicely and churning out results for years. The downside is there's always pressure on us to succeed. If you're doing a PhD, you're always conscious that you need results for your thesis. And once you're a postdoc, you're always conscious that you're on a two or three year contract. And if you want another one, you've got to have those papers out there. Yeah. So whilst I agree with you, it, it can be great for you as an experience learning from experiments that don't work. I have to say, it doesn't always feel like that at the time. If you're thinking, oh, no, I've only got six months of my contract left. I haven't published in the last year. This experiment's a nightmare. It, it doesn't always feel great at the time, I have to say. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm speaking from an undergraduate point of view, in which case when your labs go wrong, it's a bit like, oh, well, you know, I've learned these these things and there's no pressure. But I, I totally understand and didn't really consider when you are on a contract and you're on a tight time schedule, then it's kind of imperative. You know, you are producing results, like you said. So. In 2006, you secured a position as a senior researcher running the Lasers for Accelerators Lab at the John Adams Institute for Accelerator Science at Oxford, which you mentioned earlier, and you still work very closely with this institute today. Part of your work here was working on the new techniques in laser plasma wakefield acceleration, which you've mentioned. So could you talk in a bit more detail about this research over in, at the John Adams Institute? Initially at the John Adams Institute, I was working on measurements of charged particle beam size. So if you have a charged particle beam and you want to know how big it is, which is really important for particle collider applications in particular, because to see all of the sometimes very rare processes that you want to see in a collision, your particle beams have to be very, very small. So you get a high luminosity. That is, you've got a high number of particles in the same place at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, giving you increasing the chances of you, you observing something interesting happening. And I was doing research initially in the John Amsden Institute towards uh, something called the ILC, the International Linear Collider, 
which is a proposed electron positron collider to be built in Japan. And for, for that system to, it's a linear collider. So you, you just have one, one arm of positrons and one arm of electrons and you just smash them, smash them into each other in the middle. It's not a circular collider like at the LHC. And so to get the, the luminosity that you required, you had to have these really, really tiny particle beams. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I, I think it had to be something like five nanometers in one of the dimensions at the interaction wow. point. So you have to make these tiny particle beams and you also have to make sure they hit each other because if you've got something that's 30 kilometers long, you're directing positrons from one end, electrons at the other end, you're trying to make these tiny nanometer sized beams. You can imagine it's quite easy for them to miss each other as definitely, well, definitely. <laughs> which is kind of not the point of a collider. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the clues in the name and also of course you can't have a destructive diagnostic if you want to do something like measure what the particle beam size is or what the particle beam position is you can't do something like put a screen in because you, you splat your particle bunch into the screen or whatever you mm -hmm. might get a measurement but you can't do anything with that particle bunch afterwards yeah so I was involved in using lasers to try and measure particle beam size by firing a laser pulse at 90 degrees to the electron bunch. And as they hit each other, some of the photons in the laser pulse would be Compton scattered down the electron beam pipe and also higher in energy. If you scan the focus of the laser beam transversely across the electron beam and measure the flux of scattered photons downstream, what you see is that while the laser and the, and the electron beam don't interact, you don't measure any scattered photons. And that as you scan the laser beam across the electron particle beam, you start to see a flux of scattered photons, which increases as you get to 100% overlap and then decreases as the laser beam moves out of the electron beam again. So this isn't a single shot diagnostic. You have to take many measurements as you scan over the electron beam, but the electron beam is barely affected by this interaction. So the plus point is the electron beam can then carry on down the rest of the accelerator mm -hmm. to do whatever it's going to do. Uh, this is a, a non-destructive measurement. So I worked with a team who were doing a lot of work at the KEK lab in Japan on the accelerator test facility they have there. So during that period, I was doing actually what a lot of physicists do, particularly those of us that work in bigger collaborations. I was spending a lot of time on airplanes going to Japan and I was spending a lot of time getting up very early or staying up very late for collaboration meetings that were for good for Japan time or good for American time, um, which I think a lot of my colleagues find that they do people who've been on this on this podcast in previous episodes have talked about how in, truly international um, accelerator physics and particle physics are as experiments. You know, I've, I've heard someone say at CERN they were published a paper and there was 3000 authors or something. It, they, these are massive collaborations, um, but it, it definitely a perk to get to go to Japan. How, how did you find that? It was very disconcerting first because mm -hmm. uh, I don't speak or read Japanese. And so turning up in a country and discovering that I couldn't even read the signs was was very weird. Um, but once I would got used to that, I found it a great place to work. Um, it was a very international place to work. So mm -hmm. there were groups there from Japan, Korea, Russia, France, America, Amazing. the UK. So, you know, on any given shift in the control room, you know, you'd, you'd find people from six or seven countries all sitting around and working together. And I really enjoyed that. That was a great thing. 
I think what I hadn't expected moving from research that I'd mostly carried out in my own labs at, at Oxford in the chemistry and physics department was just how physically tiring it was to do these long shifts mm -hmm. and how frustrating it was having to slot your research around other people. So in, in when you work in your own lab, you can decide when you want to go in and measure something. But if you're working in a big external facility you might get two shifts a week and they might be from 1am to 9am and that's just life and you have to slot around that and that that was difficult to get used to but it is the way it is you, you do have to get on with it and also I'd never been in an earthquake before I went to Japan oh my gosh was there uh, an earthquake several the, the, there are earthquakes all the time in Japan mostly quite small ones yeah but there was one when I was on shift in the control room um that was big enough to shut the accelerator down all the safety systems kicked oh in gosh. and we had to go and hide under the tables and I was really scared I was like I don't think I signed up for this understandably i would have been exactly the same the japanese were very sanguine about it they, they'd all lived through hundreds of these so they all thought it was really funny that i was so <laughs> petrified and this is this is a very small one this is a baby one this isn't scary it's like it was scary for me <laughs> yeah um so so this research actually that you were doing in you know in japan and some, sometimes in the uk this is the first kind of time you've done accelerator focused laser physics research so why did you decide to to, to move into this area well, some of it was very pragmatic. If you are a postdoc on a short-term contract, there there comes a stage when you know you've kind of like got a month or two left on your current contract, and you're going, I really, really need another job. And so, yeah. to be honest, I hadn't really gone. Gosh, yes, what I absolutely want to do next is work in accelerator science. But what I was fairly clear on was that I wanted a new challenge. Um, when I look back at the things that I've done, I sort of have this boredom threshold after about four or five years where I kind of get through projects and I go, great, that was fun. What can I do next? Yeah. So I was ready to do something new rather than continuing in this, this short pulse at a second area that I had been working in before. So the fact that it was completely new was an attraction to me. And it, it also was about laser development, which is the common thread of the things that I've done. There was an mm -hmm. application, there were no lasers that were suitable to do it at the time. So I was employed as a, a laser physicist to, to build a laser that would actually do the job that they wanted. So that was attractive to me. But I kind of got hooked, actually. I've been working in various forms of accelerator science now for, for quite a long time, actually. So I think I haven't reached my boredom threshold. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been here for a while and still enjoying it. So um, so I, I may be here for good now. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. And in terms of talking about that, that boredom threshold, one one place you definitely didn't get bored of, of living, I feel, is uh, is Oxford. You stayed at Oxford for almost 20 years. Um, so what was so special about the University of Oxford to you? It was mostly to do with the fact that because Oxford as a university is so large, it was always relatively straightforward for me to find a new research position rather than having to up sticks and move to a new city. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the issues about academic science as a career that there's there are many more sort of postdoc now that, that you work as a postdoc for longer because you have these you do have these short two to three year contracts. 
people do often have to move quite frequently and, and it is a problem for people, particularly if you've got a family, if you don't want to uproot your kids from their school or whatever. But, but Oxford, of course, is a huge university. So I was able to find interesting work that I wanted to do without having to leave the city. I would have been prepared to go if, if, I'd, if I'd found something else, as indeed I did eventually to come up to Liverpool. But it was I could always find what I wanted to do without having to go. Okay. So like you said, in 2018, you joined the University of Liverpool. So, so why, why did you move in the end? What, what prompted that? There were a couple of things. One is that although I had this open-ended research contract at Oxford, I wasn't um, considered in the, the UK system to be an academic. I was considered mm-hmm. to be a researcher. And that has a number of implications. For example, you can't apply as a, as a principal investigator for a lot of research grants if you don't hold an academic staff position. Mm-hmm. Um, so something that we would call a lecturer at a, at a university. And there certainly weren't going to be any positions for that coming up at Oxford. But principally, it was because the, the job in the Department of Engineering that I have now Um, when it was advertised just fit so perfectly with the research that I did they wanted someone who worked specifically in lasers and accelerators and I looked at this and went oh that's what I do and (laughs) as happens with these things within the space of a week two other people had separately told me sort of like dropped me a message saying hey I saw this advert this looks this looks really great for you are you interested and another big draw was the Darsbury National Laboratory which is um uh, only sort of like 15, 16 miles away from, from the University at Liverpool. And it's one of the UK national labs. It's got a, a particle accelerator on site and a large laser system. And it was opening up for users to do experiments on that system. And I thought, wow, that would be a really great place to do experiments. And here's this job just opened up at the university just up the road. It would be silly not to apply. Mm-hmm. So I put in an application and ended up here. Which brings us to today, where you continue to look at improving laser technology for use in accelerators. So, so what would you say the next steps for your research are? And would you ever be interested? I know we've talked about your, you know, boredom threshold. Um, but would you ever be interested in exploring research outside of the field of lasers? I think I'm I'm a, a laser person through and through now. <laughs> so I think whatever I do with my research, it will always involve lasers in some mm-hmm. shape or form. But that could be in in yeah any any other kinds of interesting areas because lasers lasers are involved in practically everything. Yeah. Um, they're a great enabling technology, and you can find them in in so many areas of of research and indeed manufacturing and industry as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm kind of happy with the accelerator research at the moment. So I have sort of like two main strands of research that I do. One is working on experiments at external facilities like the Darsbury Lab, where you apply for time to do an experiment and and do cool things with the the lasers or the particle beams there. And I also have a lab in the engineering department at Liverpool, where we look at research in fibre lasers. So the the lasers that we use for this plasma wake field acceleration are amazing um, technological systems, these super high peak power lasers, but they aren't very efficient and they don't operate at very fast repetition rates. So some of them will will operate with, you know, 20 minutes or an hour between firing pulses. And even the fastest ones might only be at one hertz. Now, if you tell a particle physicist that you could make a cool new plasma-based 
particle collider for them, but they'll only be able to take data at one hertz. They'll tell you to go away and say that they're not interested because <laughs> they need to collect so much data that if you were only operating at these repetition rates, you know, they would need hundreds of years to collect the data that they wanted to see these very small signals that they look for. So the laser development side of my research is, is focused on, well, how can we make a laser that is both high peak power? So up at these really crazy peak powers of terawatts or petawatts, but also that operates at fast enough repetition rates that you can actually use them to take data at a sensible kind of rate. So kilohertz repetition rates. And what I look at is that I look at optical fiber lasers. So I think people are used to the idea of optical fiber as, as a way of transmitting light. You couple mm -hmm. light into a fiber and then you send it off under the Atlantic and, and get great internet connections with people in the States. Yeah. But they can also be active laser systems, so amplifying laser light as well as just guiding it. And they are really good for those applications. They are very efficient, so mm -hmm. they convert electrical energy into laser energy really well, which is increasingly important as we think about how can we make all of our systems use electricity more effectively and they also produce pulses of light at very fast repetition rates fiber lasers really like to work at, at megahertz or, or kilohertz that's great that sounds like exactly what you want the problem is because they're very small if you think about an optical fiber and how big you think it is yeah you can see that it's tiny so it kind of makes sense that we don't get much energy in these pulses there's just not the volume of stuff mm -hmm. there that you need to, to get a lot of energy into a pulse so fiber lasers produce kind of you know nanojoules or microjoule energy pulses to get up to the really high peak powers the big laser systems that we use will have tens of joules in a pulse so that kind of says oh well my fiber lasers are going to be a bit rubbish at that then if i can barely squeeze a millijoule out of them how can I, how can i get them up to 10 joules mm -hmm. so i look at techniques for what we call coherent combination of systems so in that case what we're doing is we're saying okay well we have a, a great laser but it doesn't produce high enough energy what if i had a thousand of those and i could get them to all fire together and join those beams together so that i could add all of those millijoule pulse energies and get a joule out but at the repetition rate and with the electrical efficiency that is a signature of the fiber systems themselves. So the other part of my research is working on techniques to do this. That just sounds absolutely incredible. And, and you're definitely right with the very pressing issue of, of climate change and, and um, needing to make all our systems more efficient. Like you said, this is absolutely key. Dr. Laura Corner, it's been fascinating hearing about your career and, and your work with lasers in so many different areas. So thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your Liverpool Scientific. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Follow at Live Scientific on Instagram and Twitter to find out who I'm going to be talking to next and when the next episode is going to be released.